Hey Steve, are you a different person when you speak Spanish? Well, I'm a dumber person, that's for sure. Since my Spanish is so basic and I make frequent mistakes, how about you when you speak English? You know, it's kind of funny. One of the reasons I was so inspired to learn English was that I thought of Americans as really humorous people. <laughs> well, I hope I'm not letting you down. <laughs> oh no, but here's the thing. I noticed that I would say even edgier things when I attempted to say them in English than in Spanish. It felt as if it could have no consequences. Yeah, how did that work out for you? Well, I almost got expelled from my private Catholic high school. <laughs> I see they must have let you stay. Luckily. Well, as for me, I struggle to make my personality come through, including the frequent lame jokes I make in English, but it's hard for me to reconstruct my personality in Spanish. And that's the subject of this episode how people reconstruct themselves in a new language and how through that process they can sometimes discover and express important new aspects of themselves that can be liberating. I can tell you it liberated me when I made my first joke in Spanish, my first intentional joke, that is. And that was? <laughs> when I said, estoy listo, pero no soy listo. <laughs> so that shows you understand the two meanings of the word listo. Yes, listo can mean ready when used with the verb estar, but it can also mean clever when used with the permanent form of the verb to be, which is ser. I'm proud of you, Steve. But we'll be talking in this episode about even bigger forms of liberation. But first, let's welcome everyone to season two of America the Bilingual, a movement and a podcast that reports on and encourages bilingualism in America. I'm Steve Levine. And I'm Fernando Hernandez. My first memory of Spanish was in the first grade. We had um, Spanish teachers come into our classes and teach us the colors and the months. And I would go home and I'd lay in bed at night before I went to sleep. Then think enero, febrero, marzo, abril, que viene. And I just, I remember repeating those over and over before I went to bed. That's Judson McDonald recalling his early days of learning Spanish. I come from a very conservative family that only speaks English, very Christian. My mother's from the South, my father's from the North, and they, neither one of them completed college. My parents and my church community always encouraged me towards the ministry, and so they saw me as a man who would be wearing a suit that had a red tie or the cross on it and would stand in front of the pulpit and preach to a congregation of maybe, you know, 40 people every Sunday at a small church in the country of North Carolina. The pressure on Judson to become that type of man was instilled early on. Are you familiar with Blue's Clues, the television show? Blue is a girl dog, but she is blue in color. And there was a lunchbox. And I picked it up and I told my mom I wanted it. And she said I couldn't have it. And... I said, why not? And she said, that's a girl's lunchbox. Judson had to negotiate with his mom. She'd buy him the Blue's Clues lunchbox as long as he kept it home. 
he would take a more masculine lunchbox to school. He was five. He thought that was normal. When he entered high school, he resumed his Spanish. And I got put in the class with the meanest teacher at the school. She um, had blonde hair and had a very strong eye gaze and had big eyes and just expected the best from you. And so I was always on the edge of my seat, scared or ready to say the right answer so I wouldn't get reprimanded. <laughs> Despite all of that, Judson was a good student, but he started having second thoughts about the role his parents expected of him, including having a girlfriend. I remember one time I, um, re <laughs> I recorded a song using my ukulele for a girl to like her favorite song and I like put it in its like little CD case and I like took it to her and she like looked really freaked out and like laughed and told all of her friends. I was expecting her to think it was really sweet and like want to be my girlfriend, but it was just for the label. I just like wanted to like call somebody my girlfriend just to get it out of the way. He lost her friendship and many other friendships. Meanwhile, something else was happening at his part-time job. I worked at Chick-fil-A during high school, which is a pretty conservative fast food chain in the South. And so there it's very um, ingrained in your gender roles. And so the dress code is based on your gender, boy or girl. Your hair can't go past the collar if you're a boy. You can't have nails on if you're a girl. Definitely can't have nails on in colors if you're a boy. And so there I started meeting people that worked in the kitchen actually because I didn't really get along with my coworkers very much in the front who were white teenagers from high school age. At the back, it was way different. But the people in the kitchen were moms and 30-year-old single people who were from South Mexico and Honduras, and they didn't speak any English, and all of my coworkers always ignored them. But I was learning Spanish, and so when I had to interact with them to ask for lettuce or ask for a straw, I would try it in Spanish and I would fail really bad. And they'd laugh and they'd smile and they'd tell me how to actually say it. And they would ask me like how to say my name and stuff. And they would just laugh along because like the, my name Judson doesn't sound, it doesn't work phonetically in Spanish. It has to be Hudson or Jackson or Justin Bieber. <laughs> so um, it, it was a fun experience. This was crucial for his Spanish learning coming from a situation where you had to use your Spanish to get across. And as a young, young learner who didn't know a lot, that made my Spanish proficiency skyrocket. And there was something else that accelerated his Spanish. When his Spanish-speaking co-workers in the back of the restaurant asked Judson, do you have a girlfriend? So those are all really sensitive topics to me, and so I had to learn how to navigate Spanish to be able to convey those emotions. Because a lot of the emotions that were inside of me, I couldn't even explain in English, much less Spanish. And that developed me in a sense that I had to author ways and get unique to use the language finally. I didn't have a prepackaged phrase from the dictionary to say, I feel really alone or I feel really isolated in my family. And so that encouraged me to improve in my Spanish and also to improve in explaining who I was to other people. Judson grew fond of the people in the kitchen, but despite feeling embraced, he wasn't ready to come out of the closet. I remember right before I left Chick-fil-A, 
there was one night where we were all talking about our future and our families and one of my friends asked me in Spanish, she was like, are you gay? Right off the, in front of a lot of people too. And so I said, no, of course I'm not gay. She insisted. And she said, are you sure? And it kept going. She was doubting me because she could tell. And it was based on the things I had said to her and the way I had talked. I never talked about a girlfriend or never talked about a future that included a wife and children. And so she just assumed. And I know that if I had said yes, they would have been supportive. Judson says there were two other men at Chick-fil-A who were openly gay. And they were very well accepted with those people. And I think that she asked me because she wanted to support me better, like she supported those two other men that were like me, that were gay. But I couldn't, I couldn't do that yet. I was 17. But eventually, he takes baby steps out of the closet. I started dating boys, and it was like middle school for me in an 18-year-old body. Awkward baby steps as he began college. Because I never navigated those waters of being able to date somebody or like talk to somebody romantically or like more than friends. And so it was like there were so many failures and so many embarrassing awkward moments and, you know, first kiss and stuff. And so at that point, I was like, yep, this is who I am. College facilitated that too. And so when I went home for winter break, I told my friend that I was going to come out to my parents and I wrote a letter to them and I wasn't, I was still scared to tell them in person. So I wrote a letter and I left it in the mailbox before I left to go back to school for the semester. A day goes by, nothing. Then a couple more, still nothing. I thought it was like, oh, they probably read it and just didn't want to talk about it, so it's fine. But one day when I was in class, my phone was vibrating, vibrating, vibrating. I looked at it, it's my mom calling me. He had seven missed calls from his mother, plus a few voicemails. I wish I hadn't listened to the voicemails because they were screaming, why would you do this? Or somebody wrote a letter and is trying to ruin your reputation and you need to call me back right now. He called her to clarify things. No one was trying to ruin his reputation. I, I am gay. And she, to this day, has never read the letter. Um, my sister actually found it and told her what it said. And she said she could never bear to read that letter. Months passed without communication between him and his parents after that. There was a moment when his dad offered to give Judson a ride to the airport for a trip he was making to Puerto Rico for a study abroad program. And then he asked me um, who had sexually abused me when I was little to make me gay. <laughs> and I was so angry and I got out of the car and I said, we will never talk about this again until you can respect me. And he tried to give me a hug, but I said no. Since then, it's been years. Um, and my relationships are really damaged still. Despite the bitter moment, Judson found fulfillment. No, I don't regret it. It was um, it was set free. It set me free. Um, there was nothing worse than living a lie. It would feel so much worse for my parents to think that I was going to school and having them asking me every day, "Have you found a girl to marry yet? Have you?" 
applied to become a pastor. I don't know. <sighs> Whatever. I feel so free. I'm so gay. I'm so much gay. Oh my god, I get gayer every day. Remember his mean high school Spanish teacher? Judson now realizes why her presence became so important in his life. It was not because she was a super strict teacher. I think she was viewed as a mean teacher is because she was more of an outcast in the school as a teacher, and that was because she was open as a lesbian. I later realized in the last few years after leaving her class that one of the reasons I related so heavily with her is I realized that I myself was gay. Then I realized that language actually facilitated a lot of my identity in growing up and learning who I was. And this has become much more relevant in terms of visibility for him. When it comes to students and especially teachers, Judson has, himself, become a high school Spanish teacher. I think that being open about these things gives such visibility. And in my role as a teacher, where there's so much opportunity for other students to receive an education where they know a gay teacher, I never had that. Apart from that one teacher who didn't even get to say that she was a lesbian or put a picture of her partner on her desk. So, Spanish was a tool for Judson to conceal his identity, at first. And in time, it became a way for him to express his identity more fully. But as we're going to hear, there are many ways a new language can help you discover your identity. Most people describe it as talking like you have a hot potato rolling around in your mouth. Like, there's this thing called a glottal stop. That's Kate Crochelle describing how Danish sounds. You sort of like have to like catch your breath in the middle of syllables. So for example, there's a part of close to Copenhagen, uh, an adjacent city called Fredericksburg, and it's pronounced Fultlixbat. So you can sort of hear in your voice, like you're catching yourself as you're pronouncing it. And there's two types of Ds. There's the regular D, which is just a D sound like Denmark. But there's also a D that sounds like an L, but with your tongue on the bottom of your mouth. That's where the hot potato thing comes in, because you're just sort of rolling around your tongue. She learned Danish, a Scandinavian language spoken by fewer than 6 million people. But this life-changing experience didn't start in Denmark. I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. I guess from the time I was like probably eight or nine when I took my first French class, I was just obsessed with France. Just the like whimsy of the Parisian love story just really captured me. And I, I loved the sort of French flair of storytelling and the culture, food and wine. And I just got swept up in sort of that idea. Of, and then I started taking French classes and then became a French major. And I was the obnoxious person in French class in high school who would raise their hand at every question. In other words... It was meant to be. I went to Bowdoin College. It was a small liberal arts school in Brunswick, Maine. I studied French and film studies. I was a double major. In college, Kate took the opportunity to study abroad. Through Bowdoin College, they do a year-long exchange with Hamilton College, where they send students to Paris for a year. We had actually, as students um, on the exchange program, signed a contract that said that we couldn't speak any English, even with our fellow American peers. I would say that we were actually pretty good about it for maybe the first month. I don't think that anyone really broke the contract, at least within eavesdropping distance. The experience was so alluring after that year that she found a way to get back to France. 
It was through another exchange program. Where they send new grads to universities all over France and they are a one-year teaching assistant and then in return they get French university students to come and be French TAs at Bowdoin for a year. So I secured one of those spots, there were five of us. The year was great for her. Kate didn't have much work to do, she traveled a lot, she felt comfortable making friends who were not American. It was just sort of a year where we could relax and enjoy our life. It was, again, very thankful and grateful that I had that experience. And I lived in a house with a Swedish-British uh, woman and three French guys. And like we spoke French and English all over the place. And I felt most comfortable in my own skin. It felt like this blending of my personality of the sort of lively, extroverted American who is nevertheless, you know, not this quote unquote typical American who's seen as like in your face and culturally oblivious. But reality was looming. She would have to get a different work visa if she wanted to teach at another university. That meant she'd have to go through a highly competitive process and prove herself better than any French citizen applying for the job. Yeah, so that was kind of the beginning of the end. I had met this guy, his name was Romain, um, through friends. He was an improv actor. I was thinking about it, and I was really prepared to stay. I loved my life there, and I could imagine a future, and definitely in that um, town, but also with Romain. And then one night, it was two days before I was due to fly home just to visit my parents for a week, he texts me, and he's like, hey, do you think you could come over? I would like to talk a little bit. Yeah, I will always remember that text message. They broke up. So I just remember walking home and then just opening the door and just like floundering and just like falling over. And then I remember crying on the plane home to see my parents and just being kind of a mess. But that pain helped clear things up for Kate. It was in that week home where I decided, you know, like I love France for its culture and its people and the amazing sort of life experiences that you can have. But in terms of job sustainability and life sustainability, it's too hard. So I made the decision to come back to Boston. The French romance ended, but the bond with Europe remained intact. I applied to, I think, four or five different grad programs in Europe. Kate also wanted to skip the GRE test that American grad schools require. I was like, no, I think I'll get a quality education without having to take um, a test that involves 10th grade algebra that I haven't done <laughs> in five years. So I looked at a program in Germany, Sweden, Copenhagen and Paris. I knew I didn't want to go back to the French bureaucracy, so that was kind of a no-go. But I knew that I wanted to be in a country where the program itself was in a language I knew, so English or maybe French, but I wanted to be in a country where English was not the first language. And that's how she settled on Denmark, a country she knew almost nothing about. I knew basically about bikes and solar and recycling. I think that was the impression that I had, that Danes were super sustainable and active and tall and blonde and that their language was weird and that no one spoke it and that they spoke really good English. She got a scholarship and flew to Copenhagen to study for a master's in film studies. The day she arrived, she got by with the help of Rosetta Stone. But the next day, when she looked into a grocery store, she realized things were not going to be that simple. I was like, oh gosh, 
you know, like you can tell in a grocery store what the items are, but reading labels, talking to the cashier, knowing how much they are charging for certain items. If they just say a number to you, I was like, I need to learn this language. Seeing just even the beef or the meat in the like freezer and seeing like freskestai. And I was like, I have no idea how to pronounce that. <laughs> Fortunately for her, the Danish government wants foreigners to speak Danish. Yeah, so the Danish government offers up to two years of free Danish lessons to foreigners who have obviously a work visa and, or uh, some sort of visa and who are there legally in the country. Kate looks like a Dane, with her blonde hair and blue eyes, but not so for many of the other immigrants to Denmark. But as you can imagine, that also creates a lot of tension with immigrants and refugees and the idea of quote-unquote the right kind of immigrant. That was very frustrating for me when I was there. Kate's visa allowed her to enter the social security system. Her Danish skyrocketed. So you can take up to two years of Danish class for free. And there's a ton of different options. You can go during the day, you can go to night classes, you can go daily, you can go once a week. And they give you all your books and your reading materials for free as well. It's, it's an incredible program. And safe to say, had I not done that program, I would not be fluent in Danish. And it took me about a year and a half to pass the fluency test. And as she was making her way into Danish society, other parts of her life started to blossom. I guess it started a little bit in that year between France and Denmark, where I was like, the uh, image that I had about, you know, marrying a European man and settling there and having kids. But that idea of the future didn't ring true for Kate. It was as if someone had projected that life for me and said... This is something that you should try to strive for because it looks and sounds awesome. But it wasn't really resonating with my like inner soul. And at that time, I was sort of wondering if my projection of a quote-unquote perfect man was again. And it went further than that. I was toying with the idea of like, why am I super attracted to people who fall on the more androgynous scale? Like I even remember saying to my friend, in that year between, like, why do I like men that wear skinny jeans and scarves so much? <laughs> um, and she was like, it's just your style. I don't know. Like, you like European men. I mean, I wear skinny jeans. But I also think that there might be some sort of queer identity hiding in there. Now, stationed in Copenhagen, she met a friend who introduced her to more people. Amongst them, an American woman. Then I just kind of fell for this woman and couldn't stop it. So that was when I sort of decided to let let it fly. So she came out in Danish. I remember saying to some of my Danish friends, because it felt easier to sort of slip off my tongue than to say directly to friends and family back home in a different language, because it was almost like a play language, you know? It was like, okay, I can try on parts of my identity in this language and culture that I don't have to be accountable for because it's like, I've tried everything. Denmark legalized same-sex registered partnerships in 1989. So coming out as a bisexual woman was not a big deal anyways. And I remember saying to my roommate being like, I think I'm bisexual in Danish. And he was like, that makes sense. And I was like, sweet, okay, <laughs> not a problem then. 
Danes tend to be a little bit more accepting of the way you just want to live your life. They do have problems, again, like I said, with xenophobia and sort of racism and classism, but I don't think there's going to be as much attacking. And maybe that's just, again, my privilege as like a white person who passes for a Dane because I have blonde hair and blue eyes. But it's really just a fabric of Danish life and it's not a big deal. And I don't think that I would have had the courage to um, come out as early as I did in the States had I not just seen that it was not a big deal to everyone involved over there. I shared with Kate my tendency to try to be more humorous in English. Yeah, I definitely hear that. And I think it's easier to sort of, because it's not your first language, make the humor be at your own expense. And I think that's made me a lot more lighthearted and maybe less insecure. I remember there was a, there was a time where we were like, some of my roommates and I were decorating for a party and I was in charge of doing the posters and we had run out of markers. So I asked my roommate, I was like, hey, do we have any more markers? And she was like, what? Do you know what you just said? And I was like, no, I just wanted more markers. And she was like, you just asked for panties. And I, I just like died, but it was just hilarious. And I was able to just laugh at myself. And I think that's definitely part of my, my differing identity in Danish is that I can just poke fun at myself a lot more. In other words, she embraced her vulnerability. I know that it can be exhausting, but being more vulnerable and open to experiences and new words and feeling uncomfortable and trying to understand how society works because it's foreign to you, that is something that is ever renewing. It's hard, but it's so fulfilling. Steve, you have brought this up in our conversations in previous episodes, the importance of allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. Yes, the power of vulnerability. It can liberate you when you allow yourself to be vulnerable which goes hand in hand with learning a new language. It also ingratiates you to others. Simply attempting to use Google Translate isn't showing vulnerability. Which is why I think machine translation will never replace language learning. Other people want to see you struggle with their language and then they delight in helping you. That's what connects people. Despite being fluent in Danish by the end of her two-year grad program, Kate made the decision to go back to the States. I want to establish a career that I love and being in media and marketing is going to be harder for me as someone who doesn't speak Danish as well as the Danes can do it because media is all about language. So that was a big deciding factor. And I had gone through some health stuff and I was just like, this is, it's really hard to live in a society despite having amazing universal health care. But the emotional support stemming from friends and family were back home. Kate acknowledges that things change, and in the future, she would consider going abroad again. But for now, I'm in Boston. Fernando, I really learned from this episode, learned of yet another benefit of bilingualism that I wasn't aware of, that the necessity to reconstruct oneself in another language is also an opportunity to reconstruct oneself. Yes, I'm so glad that Kate and Judson shared their stories with us. Who knows, they may inspire others to find their larger identities by learning another language. America the Bilingual is part of the Lead with Languages campaign of ACTFL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. 
This episode was written by Fernando Hernandez, who also does our cool sound design and mixing. Our associate producer is Becky Rankin. Check out the rest of our cast at americathebilingual.com, including Mim Harrison, Maya Thomas, Carlos Plaza, Daruma Tech, and especially our mascot, Chet. Fernando, who do we have to thank for our music in this episode? Our main theme is by Kevin MacLeod. The rest of the music comes from the Epidemic Sound Library. For America the Bilingual, I'm Steve Levine. Don't want to change you.